The Creative Relay is recorded, mixed and mastered at Smith & Western Studios. If you want to improve the quality of your podcast or start a podcast of your own, go to smithandwestern.com.au and get your first episode produced for free. I'm Paul Dunn and welcome to The Creative Relay. Today we're talking to Gavin McLeod and his mystery guest in our last episode for 2020. We'll be back in the new year with more episodes of The Creative Relay. Gav, very nice to have you back on The Creative Relay, mate. Nice to be back. When we last spoke, you had a couple of ideas of who you were going to ask along as uh, as your guest. You had a couple of people in mind. And today you have settled on someone. So can you tell us who that person is? I think we talked a lot around starting your own agency and why I'd never done it. So I'm actually really interested to talk to someone who has done it. I've got a lot of questions to ask them. Um, but we're going to get Scott from The Monkeys to come in. Awesome. Let's get him in. Well, I'm sure you had a couple of people lined up uh, and they fell over, so (laughs) here I am. You're more than welcome. We're very excited to have you, Scott. Very excited. Very happy to be here. When Gav talked about the possibility of you coming in, we were all very thrilled because we thought you'd give quite an interesting perspective. Uh, Having run your own business for quite some time, well, starting off in agencies, run your own business and then selling out and how that has worked out. So, well, I don't have a soul anymore, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> All right, good. Well, then that's the end, I think. That was my question. <laughs> and we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, yeah. But no, I just think through those different phases, it'll be interesting to see how your perspective's changed and what's stayed the same, I guess. But I'll hand over to you, Kev. Uh, well, I'm super interested to chat to you as well. Is I mean, my personal point of view is that this is the time of the independence, and I guess as one of the f- first really successful independents, it's interesting to get your perspective. But I thought we'd start right at the beginning of, of before we get into that. And just, I'm I actually really interested to know is how you got into advertising and your, your first gig. I didn't mean to. Actually, my dad was a builder and you grow up and you sort of think, oh, I'll just sort of do something like that. And I went to university and did this arts degree and enjoyed fine art, etc. and always enjoyed writing. But um, thought I'll get, get into building in some way. And I started working for this building company and it was a bit of a nightmare. And I, I said to the boss of the building company, look, I'm going to resign. I'm, I'm going to do something different. And he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, don't know, maybe advertising. And he said, well, I, I know a couple of creative directors. They're friends of mine. I'll give them a call for you. And yeah, next thing I know, I'm, I'm uh, talking to a creative director at Bozell Worldwide. <laughs> When I started in the industry, there were a whole lot of people like you who got into it with no real plan and sort of almost, not fell into it, but a lot of people did and had no qualifications that should have allowed them in. Whereas nowadays, it's, you know, you don't get in unless you've got a really well-developed book in some form or other. It was probably just a friendly harbour for creative types. I think that's been said before. But yeah, now it's quite a focused industry where people have to be focused to get into it. And I went through award school, so Dana Minter, who was the creative director I met at Bozell, said, oh, you should do award school, and got in, to my surprise, and uh, then went, holy shit, this is pretty difficult. This is a different way of thinking altogether, but it absolutely captivated 
me and I, I just wanted to keep pushing in as hard as I could. Slightly accidental, but but I've, I fell into something I really, really enjoyed. Do you think that this sort of more focused way in now creates people that working within the stereotype of what advertising is as opposed to coming in where you've got no understanding what it is at all and you literally could do anything? Yeah, maybe we are missing a little bit of the broader background, but yeah, that, that's up to us to hire the sorts of people who've got that lived experience from different backgrounds. You don't necessarily have to have different experience. And in fact, you know, when I was getting in back in the 1870s, it was actually a recession at the time. So there was there were very few jobs for juniors. In fact, I think the year we did award school, no one got hired because there were people being laid off left, right and centre. And I felt like I toiled for years, you know. I was sitting there with Justin trying to get our book to a position where we had and you're thinking, why, why am I not being hired? And I look back and go, well, A, you're not good enough. And B, the economic times were wrong. But you persist and you, you get there. So I, I don't know if it's harder to get in, but it's, um, I think probably people are more, you know, they go through tertiary education thinking that's what I'm going to do. Because if you think back to when I started, you, I was very, very clear and I, pretty much everyone I was doing it with were very clear that this is what I wanted to do. Whereas is the sort of younger generation that's coming, is this the thing or is this is a, a thing amongst the many things they're going to do? Yeah, it's true. Now there are so many different possibilities and, and the world is going to a, a place where you can have all kinds of careers and in a short space of time. And I, I guess back then people would pick one and stick. But I don't know, I, I, I never thought like that. And I thought maybe advertising would take me somewhere else and we started writing TV shows and we did other things and it all sort of coalesced into the business we've got now. Where did you go then after your first little stint at Bozell? And- so, yeah, Justin and I we'd, were doing work experience at Bozell and we were... So you met there? Yeah, so I I was doing work experience after making that contact through the building company, weirdly, and Justin turned up having just got back from England and we were sitting in a room trying to get our books together and uh, trying to get a job. In fact, I I had um, Rocky and Moose, Rocky Ranallo, and Moose Moore as as tutors in award school one year and that was was really, it was great. And at the end of that, they said, I think we might be able to give you a job. And we're thinking, this is incredible. We went and met Ron. And they just said, oh, we're waiting on a little bit of news. We should know by Friday. And Friday came and went. And Justin and I sitting there thinking, what's going on? And this is pre-fast uh, internet or internet you would bother looking news on, uh, uh, news. And BNT magazine comes out and it says, Campaign Palace have lost Optus. <laughs> so we thought, oh, we've been not waiting around for that phone call. <laughs> <laughs> but Bozell were, I think there, there was a senior guy who left to write science fiction novels and grow bananas and they hired us. Awesome. And how long were you there for then? That was a fairly short stint. I think that was about a year and then they were folded into FCB Worldwide. And we went down to Melbourne and worked at FCB for a couple of years down there, which was just great fun. And from there, was that then from there into Saatchi's? Uh Yes. So we... I probably would have stayed in Melbourne. Melbourne. We were having such a good time in Melbourne, doing good work. We had this uh, couple of crazy juniors turned up, Jim Ingram and Ben Cousins, who we're still very close to today, running their own agency and having a great time and got a call from Esther and said, oh, there's a guy, Malcolm Boynton, hiring in Saatchi, Sydney. Do you want to talk? And next thing you know, we're on a plane back in Sydney. Wow. It felt like from the outside such a sort of um, glory period for Saatchi's. I mean, there was A, doing a lot of interesting work and also just great people working there as well. Oh, there was such fantastic people and so um, diverse. 
and Malcolm had just come in and hired us. I, I, um, I think the creative department were in shock that this workaholic had turned up and was driving them harder than they'd ever imagined. Um, but there were some, there's some really great people there. Jane Carroll was there, you know, miles of experience, just incredible. Had a lot of time. She gave us a lot of time, which was fantastic. Uh, you got Jay Furby uh, in one corner making his, you know, <laughs> doing what he, Jay does. Yeah, lo- lots of great people. And they'd had a long time of probably being the best agency around, making the best work. And it was a really good place to go to realise that you, you can go to those sort of places and make an impact. I think you've at that stage in your career, you're, you're thinking, am I going to be any good at this? And we got there and we just worked our absolute asses off um, and, you know, made some good work realized that we wanted to be able to control what we were putting out as well so there was there were moments uh, particularly at Saatchi's where we went you know we're going to go present this this is our work you're not going to stuff this up if if it falls over it's because of us and having that sort of self-determination I think was a you know, a big realization around that time. Yeah, and I mean, just some people again, like uh, I mean, Pete Buckley is one of my sort of favorite art directors, and I, I used to pour over the work that came out of Sachi's and you know, find out that he'd done a lot of that sort of stuff. Oh, Pete and Tim were just uh, they joined and uh, just so, so knowledgeable, so funny, and you, you can't argue with their body of work. And yeah, so people like that coming in and out of that door, and and you, you really. You take a lot out of that. And, and so, obviously, that's where you guys met Mark and and started having conversations about doing your own thing. Oh, yeah, Granny. You know, we met him. And I think, you know, back in the days when you had an office, the second time he walked into our office, he said, hey, have you guys ever thought about starting a business? And we'd already registered a business called Catapult Communications. So, it was Justin and I thinking that we were going to uh, do something around youth advertising. That was our mindset. We were already entrepreneurial. So when Greeny said that, we went, yeah, yeah, we have. Here's our business cards. And from that moment, I think the discussions just kept going on. And how did you get your, um, the th- back then, the three drunk monkeys as opposed to catapult? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a bit of a funny story. I, I went to New York on holiday and interviewed with a few people over there and um, had a few job offers. I think we we're going to go to publicists. And then George Bush put a... Um, freeze on international visas until the election and in that time we sort of decided oh but we started writing this tv show and it, andrew denton's company Zapruder's other films optioned it and we thought okay we're going to be tv writers we're going to make this show and we're going to be incredibly wealthy and so we should probably leave yeah so that, that's how and we're writing that with tim bullock yeah. So that's where the original Three Drunk Monkeys thing came from. Oh, with Tim? Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, so it was Justin and Tim and I, because Tim was a suit at Saatchi's as well. So he and Greeny used to sit together. But Tim was a filmmaker, so he'd be coming around going, hey, look at this script I've got for a short film. must have been the most annoying suit department in the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People with more taste than you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're, they're way better creators than, than us. Yeah. Let's be honest. Uh, but Tim was always into filmmaking. We were always talking about film ideas and how he was going to win Tropfest, which eventually did. Um Took none of my suggestions on his script, thank God. But yeah, we were, so we were writing this TV show, Justin and I and Tim, and Andrew was sort of running, Andrew Denton running that that side of things. And we'd left, we were doing freelance work out of an office that we had in Andrew's building because we realised that on the 15th of the first month that we were out of our job, there wasn't any money <laughs> in our accounts. So it's shit, we better do something. So Justin and I started getting this. Uh, freelance work just under the name of Three Drunk Monkeys which was something we'd come up with just to put on the end of the TV show 
and we used to freelance to and you know, Saatchi's New York who actually thought we were still employed at Saatchi's here <laughs> until we sent them the invoice <laughs> and then they, then the lady at Saatchi's New York didn't want to pay us the, the, the invoice and she was really shirty about it but then she accidentally paid us $720,000 into our account and we had that for two weeks and immediately she starts calling going on I need to get this money so back so is this a seed funding for the monkeys of the <laughs> well <laughs> We consulted it. We, a friend of a friend had a financial advisor and we, we, we said, we've got 720 grand in our account. What do we do? And he said, well, it's actually not your fault. It's there. So the best thing you can do is go to the casino and put it on black because it's no fault if you lose it. And, you know, we didn't have it in us to do that. You couldn't really get away with that, could you? Well, That'd be awesome if you could. Well, I don't think that guy could have got away with that financial advice. No, that's probably where he is now. crazy advice. <laughs> So after your phenomenally successful freelance career. Yeah, that was actually pretty good. And then um, Andrew needed our room for an editing suite, so he went to a little office in Potts Point we shared with uh, a good friend, an entrepreneur, and his dad. And, um, yeah, we worked out of there for quite a few months. And so um, Greeny wasn't part, part of what you guys Greeny was still at Saatchi's, and, and we were talking to him at the time about joining. So he was running new business at Saatchi's, and... We kept calling and saying, hey, remember that time you said, do you want to start a business? It's about time because we'd started picking up um, direct-to-client work from Foxtel and we'd go through this incredibly stressful period of trying to pull these freelancers together and then or come up with the ideas, pull the freelancers together. So you had about 10 or 12 people around this job. We had no space. Our, our place in Potts Point was basically cockroaches in the shape of a building. And we were getting, um, you know, guys who were running jobs at other agencies to do a bit of freelance on the side for cash. And we were presenting this stuff, doing the finished artwork in a pub on a tiny laptop. But, you know, we were delivering the goods in terms of um, the product. But we do these jobs and then we'd finish and Justin and I would have this money in the bank and it was just the best thing ever. And we thought, this is, this is the way to do it. <laughs> And eventually, Grenny left Saatchi's. It, it wasn't eventually. It was only, I guess, a few months after we'd gone out. But uh, he left Saatchi's. I mean, th- they had a pretty big career trajectory planned for him. And so it was a big moment for him. He got married and had his first child in that first year. And so Mark joined us and all of a sudden we were a proper company. And he you know, brought all the things he, he does to a company. But, um, yeah, I, Justin and I used to talk about oh, should we get Greeny? Could we call Greeny? And, and I was going, man, that guy was so annoying. I don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> what would that have been? Early 2000s, I guess, was it? 2003, maybe. Yeah, and it just sounds like you had so much going on and so many options, like with the TV show and everything like that. Did you ever feel like you should just tilt that way completely? I guess the, there's the reality in, in Australian TV, if you're writing drama or comedy, you're probably not going to end up with a yacht. And there's some brilliant writers and creators out there that are, um, I, I think, in comparison to the States, for example, are just horrifically underpaid for what they do and underappreciated. But we did realise that and we were, were getting this work in that we were enjoying as well. And when Mark joined, I mean, we, we, we came to the conclusion he, he's such a driven guy and he was, I think really he was our, our only choice because we, we were going to succeed or die and he was going to succeed or die and that's who he wanted. And um, 
you know, and that's that's how we started as the three of us in that in that business. I guess the question Paul asked me around why I'd never done it, and my response was, I don't think I ever found people that I could do it with, knowing the stress of what it's like to actually do it. I mean, how have you guys survived that on a personal level of building something from scratch? That, that is such a good question. Building a business is so hard that you, I don't think you anticipate any of the daily hurdles you've got to overcome together, and. If anyone told you exactly what you were going to go through, you would never do it. you just never do it. You've got to have this mindset. And I had my dad always saying to me, you know, you, you'll, you'll never do anything if you're working for somebody else. And then about a year into our business, he said, you know what? There's no shame in that. <laughs> you don't need to be this stressed. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah. But uh, it, that is, uh, I, I think that's the core of, it is the single biggest ingredient about, especially in this business, which is so subjective and lots of opinions coming in. Well, Justin and I had been working for years together. We'd known Mark for a few years and we knew how talented he was at getting business and, and how passionate he was about creativity. I mean, he's a CEO that will, it's all about the work still. Mm. Is the work any good? And you don't get that, I don't think, too often. And so on that level, we agreed, but there's daily fights. And daily, you know, blow-ups about whatever it happens to be and who we should hire and what was wrong. You should have said this. And And how how did you guys resolve your tensions? Because they sort of magnified when you're really under the pressure as well. The tensions magnify, but there's also a sense of getting through hardship together that bonds you. And I I can look back on it now and we're still very close and much closer because we've been through all of that stuff. In the early days, it was pretty difficult uh, i remember we we were told that we'd got the foxtel business we'd pitched for foxtel against sachi's and we'd been through, and they sachi tried to sue us and we uh had uh, i think it was something like 15 grand in the bank so we all put in 10 grand to start the business and we had about 15 of that left <laughs> and and then they uh they sued us and we spent 12 grand on lawyers <laughs> <laughs> But did you win? We won the business, but then they told us there was no retainer. And what we did, we, we drove out to Foxdale and Granny was going, yes, it's our first retainer, first bit of proper bit of business. We're going to be able to grow, do all the things that we can put in place and, and grow a business. And we got out there and uh, we had the uh, meeting with the head of honchos out there and they said, oh, no, 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 there's no retainer. We, we can't do that. And we drove back. We were going down through the Lane Cove Tunnel and Granny was just white. And uh, so we we stopped at the, the Freeway Hotel in Artarman and just had a beer. I've often wondered what sad sack stops at the Freeway Hotel. Well, you, you're looking at him. <laughs> a long succession of people coming back from Foxtel meetings. <laughs> it's probably, it's just people coming back from Foxtel meetings and ride. But... Um, yeah, Granny was really ashen-faced and we, we sat down at this little bar stool and he said, are you actually going to do this? Because this is, you know, we, we are starting from nothing. This can wipe us out. Are we going to do it or not? And we just looked at each other and went, yeah, we are. So the Freeway Hotel, if you can't make a decision <laughs> about your business, that's the place. <laughs> And I guess as a creative person, did you find it easy or challenging to balance what you know is the right thing to do the job? I mean, all of a sudden, that job's also paying the salaries. So you've got to balance the business acumen as well. Yeah, because you're coming from a place of survival, but you'd be surprised how closely they're linked. The right bit of work for that company, and it might not be the sexiest bit of work, 
But the right piece of work for that client is the one that's going to keep you employed by them most of the time, unless you've got some rogues. <laughs> it's quite gutsy in particular on Greeny's part, you know, getting married, kids, so I'm not sure what your uh, situation was at the time. But also just coming into that kind of the third wheel and that partnership and was there ever any feeling that three was, you know, that there was some encroachment? It, no, it never ever felt like that. We were pretty tight at Saatchi's. Mm. Tim was clear in that he wanted to be a director mm. and he was going to go and do that and he's done that incredibly successfully. And we were friends with Greeny and we knew what sort of drive he had. It took us quite a while to go, come on, we're serious, <laughs> come over and do this. And, uh, yeah, it never ever felt like third wheel or any encroachment. It was just a natural, um, you know, missing part to the, the business. I guess... Sort of as an anecdote, we both went over to San Francisco last year to visit Facebook. And one thing that really struck me, I actually clearly remember this, is sitting in a room talking to seriously impressive people, that guy that did this sort of secret lab who came in and spoke about, you know. Oh, he was amazing. He was incredible. Yeah. Talking about how you increase the size of the internet. I think what I was really struck about is there was a whole bunch of ECDs from holding company agencies asking polite questions, very conscious that if they get this wrong, can have severe career impact on (laughs) whereas uh, like what I uh, I thought was so interesting around you you were just asking questions and I guess does coming from starting your own place having the confidence that you that is your place and and like a a position of power in some respects does that give you the freedom to ask the questions you feel that you can ask without fear of of what might happen totally but I would say that you know freedom is power it's probably you're not, not a power you, you feel, but what you're doing when you start a business is you're um, becoming a master of your own destiny. There, There is a real power that comes out of that and it will drive you harder than you would ever go in a job and it releases you from having to worry about... Probably more scary problem. when you are the boss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything's kind of more scary when you're the boss, but at the same time, you, you just don't think about the fear factor. You, you just go for it. And with Like with that, so obviously kind of um, your success has been in this evolution of where you started to where you are now is that something that still interests you in in the monkeys and where what it's evolving particularly now that you're you're obviously part of Accenture and that opens up I assume a whole world of opportunity for what you guys can do as well it does stepping back a bit you never feel like you're I don't know we've been accused many times of not stopping to smell the roses if you win Agency of the Year or whatever, we, we have gotten better with that. But we used to just go, oh, yeah, emerging cases, yeah, great. Okay, let's get on with it. We've got this thing. We've got to get on with it. We've got these problems we need to solve. It's always about the next thing. What are the problems in front of me tomorrow? What have we got to solve for the for the client or for the business? And that that's still you know really motivating. I remember very clearly at Cannes like years ago, I was at one of those talks and there was a whole bunch of very impressive creatives on the stage. One was Tony Granger and the other one was Marcella mm. Serpa from BBO Map. And um, they asked that question of, do you have a plan? And Tiny Granger just scared the living daylights out of me. He's like, he's got a one week, two week, three month, six month plan. And Marcella Sherpa was, um, yeah, on the first day I was starting my agency, I thought of a plan. I never really got around to it. Looking back when I'm sitting on the porch, when I'm retired, do I want to look at the plan I made or do I want to look at the fun I had? Um, so I, was, I knew which one I was on <laughs> board with. Like, where, where have you guys sat in terms of how you've evolved the business? Oh, great question. So when Mark joined, we were in writing this TV show and we thought that we were going to be like working dog and making a lot more entertainment with and handling the marketing on the side. 
And that was sort of the plan to create a business like that. And then when we started getting volume, we changed to other things. And then like we started an ice cream company because that opportunity came up and you you have no idea. I can say this in retrospect. You do have to be disciplined in saying, okay, this is what we stand for, our essence of the business, just to be able to say, oh, we're not going to do that or we are going to pursue that because the opportunities just come thick and fast. I think Mark would probably say we had a really thorough plan. <laughs> we started knowing that we wanted to be the best company in this country and to have a global impact. We wanted to work with the biggest clients here. We, we saw no reason why we couldn't be working with Foxell or Qantas or Telstra or whoever it was. And we just didn't want to let the obvious impediments, i.e. we were three dudes in a shitty room standing in the way. And, and to that point... Um I think one thing that really impressed me with you guys was, again, when I was at IJ, we shared Telstra and we were in a honeymoon parade with Telstra where they saw us as the leap agency to you guys. You were the main agency and then you were so busy that there were projects that we could happily run in and try and steal from you. Um, (laughs) But what really impressed me was, I think you in particular, you were in every client meeting. And at this point, Monkeys is pretty successful. Like you would imagine you could be deferring that, but like obviously you're still there getting your hands dirty. It's very hard to stop that. I think I mentioned before, you're coming from a place of survival and you know that to survive, you've got to do certain things and pretty hard to step back from that. It's a bit of a lifelong mentality, I think. But I remember RGA coming in and you're thinking, RGA, they're the hottest freaking company in the world right now. You know, they've got the Nike bands and all these kind of tech coming in. You're thinking, shit. Same when Droga 5 started. Because mm. yeah. what, what an amazing yeah. company they are. And when they started in Sydney, and we, we were quite young and we was sort of thinking, shit, this is going to be interesting. But uh, I think you spoke about the pressures of having a very successful mothership that we weren't encumbered by anything like that. We just wanted to be the best and beat the best and we just stayed on that path. We've never bought into the um, the agency kind of rhetoric and the, the bullshit that goes around with the PR stuff, talking about yourself. We always thought it's better well done than well said. So we, we never put out a press release until we'd got a bit of work out for a big client or it was absolutely necessary. So we built by doing the work. We didn't want to build any hot air around ourselves. The TV show must have done something in that very early period of the business where it just defined you as people who were thinking differently. Paul, that's absolutely correct. So we we were writing this TV show and we were making money off the advertising side of things, but we were thinking, okay, how can we make this a business? How can we do the things that we love? How can we put it all into a business? And at that time... The buzzword was content mm. and because we were actually making content and we went and made a cooking show with SPS, we were actually doing it. So we, we were walking into rooms saying, okay, we, we do this. We've got a track record. Whereas other agencies were saying, we've got a content division and it's just, I don't know, a title they've given someone and they mm. don't haven't done anything. So definitely that was a, a point of difference. And really set you apart. I think Mark was very good in defining that. Justin was you know, we, I feel like I was just doing stuff, but those guys, I think, were more aware of how that placed us in the market. And Greeny was very much about, okay, where are we in the market? How do we talk to the CMOs? What's a different angle? And that was it for us. And doing that kind of entertainment thing did give us the skills to do longer form stuff that a lot of companies wanted at that time. Going back to Greeny for a second, I was just reminded of a story, um, Pete Gomez and um, John McKelvey, when they were doing a lot of work with you guys at Southport. I love those guys. I remember them saying to me that um, they would sit in reviews where um, all three of you would, you know, be savagely going at the work, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. 
and then after that you'd got something um greeny would phone them and go come on guys you've worked on this too long <laughs> can you <laughs> can you cut your rate <laughs> yeah classic greeny but, but that is part of it we were so um invested in the work that was coming out i, I think we were pushing ourselves extremely hard we didn't realize really we were pushing everybody else super hard as well i remember um jane caro coming and doing some work with us which was really great and uh, we had a review i think it was some radio ads or something like that and she'd written these beautiful radio ads and the review was with greeny and i think jazzo might have been there and she said that was the most intimidating thing i've ever done it would <laughs> you guys are so intense i went really I've always wanted to ask someone like yourself who's been so successful in starting your own thing is I guess one of the real challenges is you get to a point where you're scaling, you know, to, to the scale you've got now and you've got a lot of clients, and you've got a lot of people working for you. How do you create an environment where your creative leads are empowered to do stuff when you're when you're a creative yourself and you know are deeply involved in the work but also want to give them enough room that's really difficult and it's a real individual thing early on i had to work out that i've got to stop doing everything i haven't worked that one out yet (laughs) yeah well it's the curse isn't it you know we'd be doing a pitch and i'd just think oh i don't know and we're sitting at 11 o'clock at night before the pitch stuff i'll just rewrite it Instead of being able to give that input back to the teams and uh, work like that, it's it's really important to be able to give people enough rope, but at the same time, it's a balance. you, you got to try and make sure it's going in the right direction. And now I can see being able to pull back is a good thing, but at certain times you've got to be able to step in and say, hey, this has got to be better. We've got to work harder, but you guys go and do it. Here's how you can do it, but you guys go and do it. Because I remember Shane Bradmick told me um, when he was ECD of BMF and um, was really working very, a lot with Warren Brown, I remember he told me that Warren Brown had told him the worst mistake you can ever make as an ECD is to write the ad yourself because the moment you start doing that, you lose objectivity and you subjectively start you know, thinking your work's the best work on the table, which is really interesting advice. But I mean, again, it's really hard to do when when the pressure's on. Absolutely. But that's the classic creative to management leap. And speaking of Warren, Warren and, and Tony Hale run this fantastic creative directors course that I've been to, I think it's about four years old now. And but previously, you're a creative working on stuff and then you get made a creative director and all of a sudden you're, you're meant to be able to direct things that and you're in management. That led to three months of insomnia for me because <laughs> I had no <laughs> idea what was going on. You're not one of the team anymore, you're yeah. the coach. And that's very difficult for people anywhere. So just knowing that that's what it's going to be like, I think the course really illustrates. It's a really good point. Like when someone overnight made me a creative director, I literally didn't sleep for three months because I was stressing about getting the right decisions mm. and all that sort of stuff. When you learn that skill and you're doing it running a business at the same time that magnifies it a million times warren's 100 right and i've got to actually say he was fantastic with us early on he'd been through the process with bmf he worked incredibly hard and been as successful as they have been and early on we went for lunch he gave us a lot of home truths like exactly the sort of thing that he told you people like that have really been invaluable when you start a business you can't underestimate the value of experience of other people who have been through it. So did you have mentors? We didn't have formal mentors, but we had people like Warren and and other people. And, and even conversations you have with the likes of Beljo or whoever it may be, and it's about the business and, and there's kinship in the shared experience. So when you do talk to people like that, and we became quite close with Jeff Goodby. He, when he was coming out here working on Combank, he came over to our crappy office and he walked in and went, this is like it used to be at our place, you know, and, and we 
That's a terrible Jeff impression. And we've been quite close ever since because there is this, you know, you've been through the shit and somehow made it work. Actually, Ben Priest from Adam and Eve came out once. He was in Australia, I think, for a foster shoot with Tim. And um, we had lunch and, and he said to us, oh, you guys have got the haunted look of people who have been to the front line that only people who have started their own businesses and are trying to run their own businesses have. And he said, I completely recognise that. <laughs> <laughs> that really stuck with me. And, and to, to that point, because I guess one of the cool things working in the States was I, I was really proud that how much recognition the monkeys had got just even in the US. Like you just assume that no one would know anything that's happening in Australia, but you guys really have been one of the sort of independents that globally has got a lot of recognition. Did you guys ever think about expanding outside of Australia? Uh, yep, we did. It was always kind of strange to us when people would recognise work or we'd, we'd get people from overseas saying, hey, you did this thing. We're always wanting to do globally recognised work. So I guess um, people would see it and, and get in contact. But yeah, we thought I mean, it's, it's so hard to start one business. But then you do get to a certain stage where you're thinking, what would happen if we were in different countries? And, you know, we were pretty close to Jeff and went over and met Jeff and Rich a few times and were chatting about a potential, a little network with the Pacific. Uh, that uh, it was a great, great idea, just sort of disregarding the, the fact that they were owned by Omnicom. who had different opinions (laughs) not such a good idea what's the skill that you have that you think sort of makes you a great businessman what's the other thing that you've got well I, I think any creative person is always thinking I'm not very good at this and I think once you stop thinking I'm not very good at this you're in deep trouble as any kind of creative you've got to go through those things every day you get a blank sheet of paper and that's what our business is and if you don't have some level of nervousness that you won't produce, I, mean, I guess you get experience and you realise, yes, I can do it. It'll come. I was at an agency drinks. One of the sort of junior creators came up and was talking exactly about that, of going, how do you get to this point where you know what you're doing? And it makes you realise, I think, as a senior, you get this facade of pretending you know what you're doing. And like they were kind of astounded when I said, look, I feel every single time I get a brief, I feel terrified that I'm not going to crack it. Which I just don't think they realise that, that that it's that's a feeling that's not going to go away. It doesn't matter how long you do this for. That, that would be, would have been terrifically liberating for that person too, because I, I think you know when you're starting out, you think these guys who are doing well above you that they they can just do it. But you do you do learn. It's a muscle and learn to put more faith in yourself. But back to your question, Paul, I think really when you start the business, you've got to survive and you learn to relate to other people. And I think it's a basic kind of uh, service business skill. Okay, what does that person need? What does that client need? What are are the individual goals of that person? What's making that person nervous? How can I solve that? And sometimes a brief is a completely different thing from the thing that that person wants to solve in their job and for their life. I think you've expressed that really well, um, just understanding that you're in a service industry and trying to understand what people really want from you is not always what's on the piece of paper. It's almost never what's on the piece yeah. of paper. Yeah. And, and trying to divine that, and the number of times we've, or well, the three of us have walked out of meetings in the early days or whenever and gone, that's not the brief. That's not what they want solving. They actually don't know this yet, but they want to solve a different problem. And if they solve that problem, all this will go away. And Or they're very nervous about their position in that company. So what they need to do now is look good to this person and 
well, we can make that happen by doing a, a slightly different, different or, yeah, it. taking a different approach. Yeah. And I think when you've got, you just need that empathy. Is that why you still like going to those meetings? I'm just a sucker. I say yes all the time. <laughs> One thing that's always impressed me, I remember your Foxtel client, um, Kim Williams. I remember uh, in a Foxtel meeting where and this is um, towards the end of your relationship with them and I think we were at MNC we were pitching on the business and he was so complimentary to you guys in the, in the slightly scary way that he had because he was a ruthless operator but he was so complimentary from your perspective that he acknowledged that you guys had done an amazing job for him creatively but he also was very positive around the business impact you guys had made. So it wasn't just um, you guys shamelessly pursuing awards. It was actually you delivered a business result. And I guess I'm interested in your perspective. I feel like the divorce in the industry um, has become around, they're almost two separate things from an industry thing. There's a, there's a bunch of people pursuing creative fame through awards and things like that, that I question whether that work is actually delivering a result. And then there's other people like the like the monkeys has always been an agency that first and foremost delivers results and does it through work. When you're coming from a place of survival, you don't have the luxury of trying to sell something that's going to win awards but not going to do the right thing for the client. You you will only get repeat business and only stay on a client's roster if you do the right thing by that client. And sometimes the opportunity comes along where that's an award-winning campaign or an idea that you can apply to that situation. And, and that's the goal. You've got to try and do the highest caliber of work. Every brief is an award-winning brief. It's just what you bring to it. But if you approach it as we're just going to win awards, the cynical side of things, then you're going to end up in a, in a real hole. And I think that that has been the approach from, you know, people within holding companies who can, who've got the luxury of being able to do that and then move to another job because mm. they're collecting the currency, mm. you know, the medals, to get them another job. If you've got your own business, it's a very different thing. And, and actually, we got to sort of a year year or two in and thought, oh, shit, we better win a few awards because <laughs> uh, we'd won a couple, but we just had no focus on it. It was very much uh, survival. And we always thought we, we want to do work that's famous and you can talk about and affects culture. And if that intersects with award shows, then great. But being famous in the advertising industry is probably a little more hollow. <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's starting something you know, I mean you, you've got a vision for starting a business it's all very good but you've got to have a couple of clients that are going to give you going to take the punt on you because you're, you're such an unknown quantity at this stage so is anyone looking back who really really gave you guys the, your leg up yeah you're right I mean there, there are clients you have when you're working for an agency that will say oh if you ever started your own business you'd have the have our business straight away and that generally takes about two years but um I've got a yeah, probably a shout out to Ant Morn, who was at Foxtel, who um, really believed in us from the beginning, and and Brian Walsh, and uh, the guys who were at Eubank. I think there was yeah, a few people there who uh, they do, they do have to take a punt. There's there's three guys sitting there called Three Drunk Monkeys, and they're presenting work to their board, you know, the, the Lachlan Murdochs of the world, and saying this is who we've hired. So thanks to them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in the next step for the monkeys because obviously this is constant evolution and you are poised in this really interesting thing. You've become one of the biggest players in the market. You've got access to um, the resources of the consultancies. Like what next for you guys? Uh, it's a big question. We, we've got to try and change how 
how the business or how companies value us. I mean, not long ago, the marketing and advertising people were were right at the CEO's table and we've drifted away. And we're, we're lucky enough to have the kind of conversations and relationships that it hasn't happened to us. But the industry is losing currency with the C-suite and you've got to affect business. You've got to, you've got to be at the point where you can affect a business. Otherwise, there's no point. Otherwise, you're... you're twiddling around the edges and the power of consulting company they're they're affecting the business in another way they're coming in and doing the consulting on these the telstra's of the world and these huge corporations but they don't have any sort of control over marketing messaging so they're consulting and they're building the back end and all that sort of thing and here we are controlling the messaging and the the strategic the brand strategy stuff and the idea with that is to be able to get it all together connect those two absolutely so connecting brand promise with brand experience and it, it's tremendously powerful when it does link up but i guess back to your question gav the, the the future is is anything you want to make it that's how we're doing it we're trying to get the value for our sort of people and increasing the value of what we do in the business in the marketplace I mean, you're, you're one of the few creatives definitely in our market who's like has the luxury of um, being in a C-suite and do you find just out of interest do you find that your way you describe uh, an idea and its impact on the business like the language of that changes if you're talking to a CEO as opposed to a, a CMO for example everyone's somebody with a problem to solve and if you can help them solve it the way we do it is doing you know the, the messaging and the, the brand strategy and the, the communications and making those sort of lateral leaps that are going to solve those business problems for those people and if, you, if you're doing that and you're doing it well and it's helping their business then you know the conversation the cmo has with with their ceo is very different to hold on that the marketing's looking is over here and the actual business is over here i've got my hands spread apart by the way and but, but then you have the conversation with the c with the ceo and you get to know again back to that empathy thing what their problems are where are they coming from what do they want to solve that's always been a a really valuable thing for our business because if you if you've got that connection you can change how people view a business over time. One thing I really agree with you is, and I guess it's what you said, it's the value of being in the room, getting the brief or hearing directly from the client because so often the um, the actual brief is not on the written brief. It's actually in what's said in the room as well. And you can't pick that up unless you're in the room. Couldn't agree more. You've basically got to smell the fear. <laughs> <laughs> When you guys sold to Accenture, what do you think was in it for Accenture? Well, Accenture are consulting and to, so for example, Telstra, consulting to Telstra, building a lot of the back end or building Qantas Frequent Flyer back end and with Accenture Interactive. But then there'd be this um, marketing messaging over on the other side and there's CMO and they've got no access to the CMO and, and brand strategy. And the idea is basically from their point of view is to pull the whole thing together, to have some sort of control over that and be able to provide that end-to-end solution. And did you know of those guys because you shared clients? Is that how you first got connected? No, actually, we've been approached a few times over the years and decided to take things into our own hands. I think we just got to 10 years in the business. We've been going hard for quite a while and felt like we had to take the next step and we, we didn't want to just... (laughs) <laughs> you know, burn out and and die. So, 
we, we looked at who was around and uh, to, as I said previously, the, the holding companies weren't really of interest. We spoke to a few of the uh, consultancies. We actually spoke to uh, Accenture and they uh, said um, not at this time. And we're talking to Vice in New York, and that, that was an interesting option, you know, around storytelling and content creation. And um, I think Accenture bought Kamarama, and then they got straight back on the phone. And this was about two or three months after we'd first spoken to them and said, look, this could be a really interesting thing. And they, they came back in, and all they were interested in, how do you get your people this motivated? How do you keep your people? How, how do you keep the culture? Which is a very different conversation mm. to someone walking in and saying, hey, we want you to make this much money. You're making 80% margin here. We want you to be up to 22. We did, you know, all that bullshit. It was all about the culture. It was all about protecting that culture and what we could do together and grow it and become a, a bigger force in mm. the market. Accenture has done such a great job of, of coming in and buying a bunch of agencies and then making sure that they don't just dissipate overnight. But having said that, how do they then integrate such different personalities of the different agencies they bought into a coherent whole? I, I, I think it's going to take a little while. You're right. They're, they're different. I mean, they're, they're corporates. And we're independent creative thinkers who have been entrepreneurial and they're, they're people who have been in corporate environments all their lives and they've got structures and it's a bit like the army, you know, they, they, you, you, you've got a way of doing things. And those, the way we do things and the way consultants do things, they're, they're different. But what's been amazing is that they've gone, well, yeah, we're different. How can we sort this out? And so there's certain, I don't know, procedures or whatever. You want a glass of water, you've got to I don't know, get 14 approvals all the way to New York. And, and like that, that's just not how this industry works. So we would say that's not how it works. And then you've got momentum from around the world. You've got, firstly, I think, Kamarama, and then there's Rothko, and of course, Droga joining. And you've got all these voices joining this, uh, the chorus of saying, look, guys, it, this, it works differently in this business. And there's some really pragmatic things in that, and there's some philosophical things. But what's been good is that I think there's a willingness to let the tail wag the dog. Uh, Their culture, they realise they need to change and there has been a little bit of resistance but at the same time there's been people who are really excited by the fact that there's this weird new element and that we're making sense. And you've got Greeny who's running Australia New Zealand here, the group of companies in Accenture Interactive Mm. and it's you know, people are are energised by how we do things as as an industry. If you can imagine you're you're working in in one way and you've got us coming in and going, hey, this could be pretty cool. <laughs> what if what if we do it like this? And has it helped having Greeny in in that role? I've I've really admired Fjord for a long time. They have got some really smart people. Yeah, they're brilliant. There. Has has it really helped having Greeny sitting there like a spider at the centre of the web, being able to you know get people to actually work together? Yeah, so we've had great success working with Fjord, and it's it's all about. Um, you know, lighting the fire in people and what they're passionate about. It doesn't matter where they're working, but if they're doing a good good job on whatever it is, whether it's doing huge um, technical back-end things for the tax department, if they're good at doing that, mm. then fantastic. Let's provide an environment where they're energised about it and they're not thinking they're coming to a cubicle and punching in ones and zeros. I think that the way the advertising industry tells stories you know, it's, a, it's all about telling stories of brands and all that sort of thing. And we do it for ourselves as well. And they don't necessarily have that in that culture. So when we weave a story about what we all do together, everyone sits up and goes, wow, that sounds really good. And so I think we're definitely bringing that to it. 
And, and do you think just on that story component, because I actually think it's one of the most interesting things around um, what's happening in the industry at the moment. Like you would argue that there's never been this idea of stories and the power of storytelling has never been at more of a premium at the moment, but the how you tell it is just changing so dramatically. Yeah, the how is just le- left open to the media explosion, technological advances and how we receive messages. The story itself, though, I mean, humans aren't stopping storytelling. That's the, the basic thing that we do. We try and engage an audience, whether it's a novelist or a filmmaker or whoever, but we're trying to engage an audience and hopefully a big audience so that that basic skill you're right it's getting more and more valuable even because and almost because there's so much disparate ways of receiving those messages for you guys looking at some of how agencies have approached that you look at the Wyden and Kennedys and you feel like a few years or even um, the Goodby Silversteins a few years ago you know they very successfully moved into digital when it was in its infancy but I feel like they've now gone back to what they do really well and they just doubled down on that and, and Widens definitely have done that mm. um, as opposed to some places that have gone you know storytelling is everything and we can do everything but the reality is not everyone can do everything yeah. my dad always said to me you only need to be good at one thing but you've got to you've got to be really good at it and I think that's that holds for companies if, you, if you're really good at what you do, you're always going to be able to move into different areas. But is that where you want to be? Is that where your passion lies? Is that where you're going to keep your fires burning for the next 10 or 20 years? Is that a conversation you guys have? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you, you get all these different opportunities to do different things. And at, at heart, I think, as our company, we're, we're storytellers. And whether that come out as TV shows or in, in campaigns or in, even through our you know, you talk about digital work, you go, you've, you've got to be able to tell a story with that. Otherwise, it's just a functional bit of media. How has your job changed since the sale? The, the, there's so much going on at the Monkeys. I, I haven't been able to properly separate myself. It'd be nice to work more with Fjord and Accenture Interactive. Yeah, and, and we are pulling that together. I think Mark's really taken the brunt of doing that and but Justin and I are doing, we're still trying to get the best work out there and what's been great is that we have been able to involve for example the Fjord guys you know you you come up with an idea they've got a a system of approaching you know building some sort of tech idea which is we we just didn't have we've got bits of it and some of our guys have really gravitated to what they do and so we've got this great if you look at a Venn diagram we've got this great sliver in between where there's people on both sides with similar experience but the the strength is pulling the disparate strengths together it, it doesn't matter where you get to in this industry it always feels like you, you are still responsible for that brand's messaging how that brand is seen every time you see something from that brand and they your client you feel responsible for it and sometimes you're on an agency roster and other agencies put out something and you just go no it's wrong it, it doesn't feel right for the brand or and you, but you, you feel responsible for it. Nick Law used to have, uh, I thought, like a brilliant description of that. Like he called it, um, the that was Nick's genius. Like he was so good at kind of coming up with these interesting ways that really resonated with um, uh, marketers. Um, and he had this thought of the whole idea. And his point was it needs to work on the storytelling right on the top level, like your Marcom's work. And it needs to work at the functional side of it as well. And I guess that that's what's interesting for you guys now, that you can operate on both of those levels when it comes to a brand. Well, for years, we would say to our clients, if we do a really nice emotional brand building exercise over a few years and you're getting this 
you know, people will know you for a certain way. If the fine print on your website doesn't match up with that, then it's not worth it. So you've got to be able to do that. And then um, that was out of, out of our control. And now, of course, it, it is. So it's nice to be able to affect things that far into a business. Taking a bit of a left turn, I guess, because both of us have a passion for surfing. I guess I'm just interested in your perspective. I find it kind of fascinating. I feel like so many creative people gravitate towards sports like surfing. Um, and there's, I guess there's two things. It's like like our job. Like you do something that um, tests yourself physically and um, it's an art form in itself learning it. But then also it's the mental side of it. So like has that been true for you in terms of balancing the pressures of work with something that you can throw yourself into as well? Oh, yeah. I, I, without surfing, I don't think I'd be sitting here because it's the absolute balance to the craziness of your your work life and whether you're surfing or bobbing around in the ocean I always feel like you get back in there and you're a eight-year-old kid with no no worries and you can be that person for the next hour or two and then you hop out to a million emails <laughs> but you've had that I don't know you've had that reset and you, you you've got to oh, I don't want to sound all hippie but you, you've you need to connect to the earth and connect with nature, and we are really getting hippie, aren't we? Yeah. But um, I think the worst idea I ever saw was um, an agency did a connected surfboard that you could see all your emails on your surfboard while you were there. Yeah. <laughs> like that's not the point. <laughs> well, even the Apple Watch, yeah. you can take an Apple Watch yeah. in there now. It's like no, yeah, no, you're right. It's one of the few environments that really take you out of out of that uh, professional space. Unless you run into your colleague in the water. <laughs> <laughs> Which ruins it for everyone. What's the piece of work that, well, two pieces of work then, oh, they might be the same. The one that you're most proud of and the one that you think that you're most proud of that's come out of the agency. Oh, good question. Justin uh, put together this, um, when we got to 10 years, he put together a book that sort of catalogued our 10 years. And because you're so forward looking, it made me look back on what we'd done and so on one hand i would say the entire body of work i i just i'm so proud of and i'm so proud of the people that put all that energy and effort into it and you talk about what are you what are you proud of in in the whole thing and it it it, leaving the work aside it is about the group of people that come together because all all this business is is a group of people in a room solving a problem and the, the sort of people we've had over the years putting so much energy into it and talent and passion it's been uh, it's quite humbling to see that to see that happen so i think i'm most proud of just seeing that group of people come through and they're still coming through in terms of a single piece of work there was a lamb film we made a few years ago where all the um european arrivals came into a bay and the aboriginal guys are there already and we put aside australia day because lamb is all about unity and you can't have a, a brand about unity and and have that tension around that day and you know that caused a pretty big uproar and a lot of aboriginal people i think would say that was terrible but a lot of them were incredibly supportive and just saying you know thank god it's a it's a message it's out there in corporate australia and even if it was a mistake it's a positive mistake Mm -hmm. and hopefully we can in things like you know in in indigenous uh, reconciliation we can get through these positive mistakes until there are no more mistakes I don't know how long that's going to take, but you'd like to think that that's one little part of that journey. Mm. So good or bad, I look back at that and think that was really ballsy and, and the, the client's really got to be applauded. Credit, credit to uh, Andrew Howie, who was at MLA at the time, and the rest of the people at MLA. But, you know, that that's there's, there's lots of bits of work I'm proud of. I, 
you know, I see Qantas films that Justin's done and I get all teary. <laughs> I just love it when people react. Yeah. Putting award shows aside, go to a cinema and see one of your films come up and people start crying or they laugh. Or and Every day you've got to wake up and think, what's going to what's awesome about what I'm working on right now? What's going to change my life or people's lives out there? If you don't have that, you're, you're gone. If we're going to make an impact on people, the downside of what's happening in the industry is you get these more focused people coming into it, knowing clearly what they do. I think we're getting a, sh- a shallower and shallower pool of people who we're bringing in. So I guess the question is, how do you guys see yourselves helping create this more diverse industry as well? I've got some people in my department who's just super passionate about it and you know their, their perspective of how same same we are as an industry um is you know it's very valid yeah i I think the most valuable people are the ones with the broad interests and you know they've got a sense of you know what what the general population is doing at any one time and obviously we can affect the people in the industry by hiring those people and sometimes they don't have the full suite of skills, but they've got a great view of the world. You know, we've, we've always sort of hired people who aren't from the traditional areas. Because I guess the pressure you feel as a creative lead and as an agency is, I do feel like nowadays the um, the leeway to have someone in there that's not necessarily going to fit the, the hole that you've got them from, they're a bit mm. of a square peg. And, you know... When I started, there was that that much more time to help people get to the point when they were really contributing a lot. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, if on day one, maybe it's just um, you know, particularly in the holding companies, there's someone who's scrutinising how billable you are and all that sort of stuff. So you really do have to um, make some smart bets and stuff. Like there's less room for for the leeway it takes to get someone who doesn't kind of necessarily fit in on day one. Yeah, I think it's our job to create the room. Uh, I mean, one of our longest-serving guys, uh, Scotty Detrick, he's worked at Mambo and he was a sculptor and a musician and he came to see us and just have a chat about what advertising was like and we met him and went, oh, would you want a job? <laughs> and he's he's a CD and doing extremely well. And But it, it took a long time for him to get his head around, okay, this is what kind of work we've got to be putting out. But you just know that all, all these varied interests are going to work out. And, and anyone we hire, we talk about what, what are they passionate about? What do you do outside of work? Can you make it something that you can do inside of work? Because you don't want to spend your life doing stuff you don't want to do. And you can always harness somebody's passion for something in a positive way in our profession. We're always looking for people who are entrepreneurial have got interests want to apply those interests to to what they're doing and even if it seems like they're wildly different from what you need them to do yeah you've, you've got to try and marry those at some point don't you mm. i hired someone from um you guys uh maria torres yeah i hired her purely because you know her portfolio she did this really amazing exercise where she went i love art direction i love the impact of art direction and then when she was coming over from spain she'd she'd kind of art directed all her gum tree things she was selling and you go that's someone who actually really loves art direction yeah <laughs> yeah you got to find that talent people don't you and hopefully um, make sure you keep the fire burning in them. Because if, you, if you've got them working on endless things that aren't in their wheelhouse, they're either going to love it or they're going to burn out. So how have you found the transition from a small independent creative shop to now a big agency working with big clients with like the full remit of work? And a lot of that work's not necessarily the sexiest work. Yeah. So how do you inspire and motivate a creative department to joining the monkeys because of who the monkeys are? It's the same mentality. 
mentality hasn't changed. We, we always want to do the best creative we possibly can. But part of doing that is that you, you, you got to do other work. And sometimes, as you say, it's not the sexiest stuff. But we've got clients who expect to be pushed, who expect to be given the sort of work that we all want to make that is right for them. And we'll always do it in a way that's it's right for that client. And anyone who's working on any any client knows that they are they can put their best thinking down and we will go to that client and say this is right we should do this so that there's there's not oh you're working on that client don't worry about it just bang it out it's okay well how, how good can it be and i and i know um other agencies have complained about clients like telstra but we've got this fantastic relationship with them even though they're a freight train and you're, you're getting through a lot of stuff some of the the stuff we're doing with it at the moment is is amazing it's probably the best stuff we've got on the table and it's um it's really gratifying when you can hire someone into a role that looks like hard graft on the surface but turns out to be this massive opportunity and do you think that that's the consequences of you guys being still being so involved in the business because i guess you you see it with independence that's that that sell and their um principles kind of at that point are you know counting down their days until they're not there anymore and then you see the the persona of the agency just dissipate whereas clearly you guys are still in the work showing leading by example yeah that you've, you've got to have individuals who are super passionate and, and are driving stuff forward and whether that's us or somebody else they've got to be there i think when you get agencies in transition phases from one person to the other or whatever it may be it's probably they go through a bit of a dip but if you've got the right people there and and sometimes when you're out of the room it's better because those other people can step up and we know we can push we know we can do this we're not going to get in trouble (laughs) what's the worst that can happen but you probably find as well i mean you know with the likes of telstra they trust you because they know that you're not always pushing your own agenda. And so when there is a, an opportunity that comes along, they're probably more inclined to go out on a limb for you because they know you're not doing it purely out of you know, self-interest. That's right. Any, any relationship is based on trust. Any client relationship, or actually any relationship at, at all. And if you don't have that, then it's not a happy place to be. But when you do have that trust and you're doing the right thing, you're solving those problems for those people on the other side of the fence then you're going to get that trust and so when you come at them with a very different kind of thinking and you can say look no it's the right thing to do it's based on this sound strategic thinking they're going to be receptive the last one for me is that um that whole uh sense of entrepreneurship that you probably got from your old man and you know you mentioned how you got into the industry in a, in a recession and you know, and I'm sure uh, in the early 2000s, as we went into the GFC, there were quite a few obstacles in terms for your own business. Oh, the GFC helped us, I think. Did it really? Yeah. How? We just sort of kicked off. Anyone who was, um, any every client was looking at their agency retainers, and if we were working on those clients on a project basis, I think we were better value. We, we probably weren't undercharging, but we were much better value because we were nimble and just getting things done quickly. And, and just being effective. Yeah. And so I think the GFC probably helped us. When it, when it was announced, you know, we looked at each other and went, oh, shit. So in terms of like where the world is now, then would you be encouraging people or, or you know, if, if, if you were in the same position now, would you be taking that leap and going up and opening your own business? Yeah, I think it's an incredible opportunity right now to start a business. I shouldn't be saying this, should I? <laughs> 
You might lose a few people back at the office. No, if, if they want to go do their own thing, it's with our blessing. And there, there have been a few people who have started businesses that come from us, whether it be a juice business or whatever, and we've just encouraged it all the way. Yeah, it's an amazing opportunity, I think. Why do you say that now? Because the value of thinking, of good thinking, is going up. And people are open now to looking at different places of getting that thinking. And that thinking traditionally came from a creative agency. And then it came from, you could get little consultancies like how we started or little businesses. And, and we've sort of grown and there's, it, it just feels like at the moment there's this space where it's, it's full of opportunity. And you can do things differently. You can buy in creative thinking and data, for example, and just get a different mix of people. And you've instantly got a different story. And you're, you've got a conversation with the CMO. Hmm. Very encouraging. The last question for me is, you and Justin have had such a long relationship <laughs> as creative partners. Yeah. How is that? Um, I mean, it's just super interesting how it must have evolved over time and got to a point where you, you know, you know each other so well. But you, how do you keep the interest, kind of the tension between the two of you? Was that not a problem at all? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not really. I mean, we're, we're quite different characters. And I think that's helped over over the years back to what you were asking Paul it comes down to trust and we've always I don't know have had similar ambitions and it is incredibly fortunate to go through this kind of process I, I feel really lucky to have gone through it with with these guys and where we are now and be able to look back a little bit and say you know that there's times you just want to kill each other for whatever reason but I remember Justin saying early I hope we can all get out of this as friends and sort of 10 years later here we are and we are very close and that's uh, a pretty amazing achievement yeah it probably is but um yeah i've been working with justin since i think 1998 or 99 and uh i think we had an all-staff meeting one day and just i went hey i think we've been working together for 20 years this week (laughs) (laughs) it's been great and we yeah it's hard to underestimate how much your business partners give you in your in your personal life and professional life we've been through you know births and marriages and health scares and all kinds of things together and that's not including the business stuff which is relentless every day so yeah i I do look at those guys and count my blessings that i've had had this time well it's a great reflection on the three of you i reckon so good on you scott i think it's a it's a great story i love it it's really thanks i almost sacrificed my wife actually she tried to break up with me when we were first going out, it's the first year of the monkeys. She's like, hey, my friends think you're a ghost. You're obviously not interested. It's over. And I'm going, no, I just wait. It's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> just wait 14 years or yeah. so. <laughs> so thanks to her as well. We could talk for hours, I reckon, because you're such an interesting character and uh, the story of what you've built is, is amazing. So thank you for coming along, Scott. But part of the part of the drill is that you have to come back. Have you got someone that you're not to tell us, but have you got someone in mind that you'd you'd like to have on the other side of the table to have a chat to? I might have to talk to a recruiter. <laughs> I told Esther I was gonna mention her today. <laughs> That's a second she's mention. Been a, she's been a very uh, long term friend of the business. Um, I do have someone in mind. I, I haven't spoken to them yet. <laughs> good, good. Spring it on them. No, but I think it's probably uh, it'd be interesting to get a viewpoint from the more diverse part of the advertising world. Okay, look forward to it. And um, Gav, my friend, excellent. I loved having our chat and I think you did a superb job today. 
I thought you were very well prepared. I wasn't really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you faked your way through it. Um, But it's been really great having you on, so thank you so much for your time. Thanks, I loved it. It was awesome. Thanks for downloading the Creative Relay podcast brought to you by Smith & Weston. Go to our website at thecreativerelay.com where you'll find a whole lot more info and extra content about the podcasts and all our guests. We'll be back in the new year with more episodes of the Creative Relay. Thank you.